the guard down now, it's possible that the situation may rebound. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Friday. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 25th of March. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Asian markets are opening and this is Peter Lewis with the business headlines. Nearly half of the European companies in Hong Kong plan to fully or partially relocate operations and staff out of the city. A new survey from the European Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong reported yesterday. Singapore said that it would end the country's outdoor mask mandate, which was first imposed in April 2020, and remove travel curbs so that it's almost like before COVID-19, Prime Minister Li Xunlung said. G7 and NATO leaders have met in Brussels to discuss further measures against Russia. G7 leaders agreed to limit Russia's ability to sell its gold reserves to support its currency. But German Chancellor Olaf Scholz warned that banning Russian energy would mean plunging Germany and the whole of Europe into a recession. U.S. regulators have warned that Chinese investors' hopes that it was close to an agreement with Beijing that would allow audit inspections of U.S.-listed Chinese companies and avert the delisting of $2 trillion of shares were premature. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Dr. Lo Chi Kwong, Secretary for Labour and Welfare. Before that, we'll speak with Andrew Ferris from UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management and Quentin Webb at the Wall Street Journal. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, stocks recouped most of Wednesday's losses and government bonds renewed their slide as US jobless claims hit the lowest since 1969. The S&P 500 index rose 1.4% to 4,520. The Dow added 349 points to 34,708. The Nasdaq climbed 1.9% to 14,192. The Pan-European Stock 600 index fell 0.2%. London's FTSE 100 inched up 0.1%. And the Moscow Stock Exchange reopened yesterday for the first time since February the 25th with limited trading in 33 stocks. The benchmark Moex index rose almost 12% in morning trading before ending the day up 4.4%. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index ended the day 208 points or 0.9% lower at 21,946. The tech index tumbled 3%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.6% at 3,250. In the commodities markets, Brink crude oil dropped 3% to $118.16 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,959 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note rose 8 basis points to 2.37%, close to its highest level since May 2019. And in the currency markets, Japanese yen is down 1% at a six-year low of 122 and a third against the dollar. The euro is trading at $1.10. Sterling is worth $1.31.8 cents and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 32 cents. Chinese yuan is at 6.38 in offshore markets. And around Asian stock markets, this morning as trading gets going, the SX200 in Australia up about a quarter of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up 0.4%. The Cosby in South Korea has risen 0.1%. 
ADRs in New York predicting a small decline of about 40 points or so for the Hang Seng when trading gets going later on this morning. It's 8.07. Let's go and join our guests. Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management, is on the phone. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Quentin Webb, Asia Markets Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Morning to you, Quentin. Good morning, Peter. I want to start with Singapore. Singapore said yesterday that it's going to shed its outdoor mask mandate, which was first imposed in April 2020, and remove travel curbs, so that it's almost like before COVID-19. Prime Minister Li Shenlong said the city-state will put in place its most significant easing of COVID-19 restrictions from next Tuesday, with most restrictions for travellers lifted. And he said the moves signified the country's plan to take a decisive step forward towards living with COVID-19. So, Andrew and Quentin, Andrew, first, we have a a clear distinction now, don't we, between Hong Kong and Singapore's strategy. How significant is this, do you think? Well, it is a a step towards rational sanity as opposed to simply clenching your teeth and uh, seeing it all, all through. That Hong Kong is doing, although Hong Kong did make uh, tentative moves, for example, lifting a complete ban of flights from just about every major economy in the world. So, you know, they're getting there, but not anywhere as Singapore is doing. And Singapore is doing extremely well. And uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. But uh, logically, this makes a great deal of sense. Carrie Lam said yesterday um, that uh, there's no one size fits all. But do you think at the end of the day, we are competing with Singapore for, for talents, for jobs, and competing with them as an international aviation hub and a business and finance centre. Is it right to look at it that way? Well, I'm afraid, Peter, it isn't. Not because Hong Kong can and will maintain its position indefinitely, but uh, I've never seen in my life a, a, a financial centre simply growing rapidly and overtaking everybody else. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, the major... F- effort that the Japanese did in the 70s to sort of overtake New York as a major financial center. And they didn't. They're still is ranging in terms of absolute size, okay, somewhere behind uh, New York, China, and even occasionally Hong Kong. So uh, unfortunately, size does matter. Mm. So, you know, you really need big financial markets in terms of the amount of money that's being transacted and the amount of money that can be raised and played before you can say that uh, I will elbow out a financial market such as Hong Kong, which is still ranks amongst the fifth possibly biggest in the world. Quentin, how, how do you see it? What's the significance of this? Well, yeah, as you say, it does show this big contrast in approaches. Uh, I think, of course, Hong Kong's situation is slightly different because there's a greater priority on um, reopening to the mainland, which is something that Singapore does not need to think about. Um, I agree that as well, there's something about the stickiness of financial centres which makes it hard for one to be dislodged. You know, if we look at London, for example, it has suffered something of a hit from Brexit, but actually, you know, all of the kind of capital, talent, systems, legal expertise, etc., that is built up over decades is rather hard to move to another centre. So I think something similar applies to Hong Kong, and there's a lot of business in Hong Kong that's relating to China, which is unlikely to be 
siphoned away to other financial centres, I think. I, I understand this argument about the stickiness. New financial centres don't spring up out of nothing, just like you know we have on stock markets. They have a monopoly in certain products, but sometimes things do change, and they tend to change because a centre makes a catastrophic mistake um, in strategy or through neglect. And what we're seeing here, as we saw from that European Chamber of Commerce survey yesterday, nearly half of the European companies in Hong Kong Kong now plan to fully or partially relocate operations and staff out of the city. This is a big problem, isn't it, for Hong Kong? Well, that was a very striking result, yes. Um, I do wonder, because that survey was conducted in January and February, whether if you went back to people now, given there have been these moderate sort of compromises, if you like, from the Hong Kong government, whether some of those responses might be a little bit more moderate as well. Um, but, yeah, it, it is clearly the case that certain kinds of business and certain kinds of um, expats in particular are losing patience with Hong Kong. And Singapore, for some people, is a very attractive alternative, although I should say that it's not necessarily easy to relocate people to Singapore. There are various hurdles you need to jump through in terms of visa applications and so on. And it's not straightforwardly the case that Singapore wants a whole load more new arrivals. So um, the idea that, you know, Hong Kong's loss is straightforwardly Singapore's gain is a, li is a little bit problematic. Uh, Peter, I will jump in here with a little historic allusion. Again, uh, in the middle of the First World War, uh, somebody asked Clemenceau, which was the prime minister at the time, you know, this guy with huge droopy white moustaches, about uh, people resigning or a general is about to go. And he said very quietly, you know, he says, the cemetery are full of indispensable people. So I, you know, everybody is potentially irreplaceable. And of course, uh, quietly, China will turn around and point at 1.2 billion people, uh, of which there are undoubtedly several hundreds of thousands with uh, equally good talents and skills, although not the nationality, mm. neither the experience, but the idea that uh, you're hearing the whooshing sound of all talent going out of Hong Kong and gosh, what is going to happen to us? The answer is, is uh, I don't want to count my chickens. It says nobody can replace me. My <laughs> wife says that, of course, but uh, nobody else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the same time, um, we're not supposed to be just a Chinese city, are we? We're not. It's not so easy to just bring people in from the mainland. Of course, there are people who want to come, but the point is we're supposed to be an international business and financial centre, international people, and companies are based here. But this is a, a dramatic survey result, isn't it? It's not something that we can just sit back and, and, and take lightly. Uh, putting a gun on the head of either Lam or C concerning COVID and says, well, unless you change very quickly, I'm going to go away. I'm afraid I know what the answer is. Okay, nice to know you. Bye bye. Mm. I, I don't think this is this. I don't think this is going to work. I, incidentally, I don't think for one moment the survey out of people saying, you know, like children, uh, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to hold my breath till I die. Okay, <laughs> kind of thing. I don't think this is one moment the case. But uh, if it came soft to push, I would not want to try to solve. Okay, Quinton, we have had some good news. We ought to mention that as well. Hong Kong's maintained third place in the semi-annual Global Financial Centres Index, which was published yesterday by UK consultancy ZYEN. Not totally sure how they do this, uh, but they seem to take into account 
measures from other surveys, including the World Bank, the Economist Intelligence Unit, the OECD, um, and, and so on. Um, but uh, I, I suppose that we can at least say that there is some good news, isn't there? We're still a major financial centre despite uh, so many people leaving. Yeah, I, I think that rec- reflects reality. You know, Hong Kong does remain a major financial centre. Um, I think there's perhaps a little bit too much, uh, you know, spurious precision there in the survey. If you look at the kind of points ranking, actually the difference between Hong Kong and the fourth, fifth and sixth placed um centers is very very small so you know yes we know hong kong is one of the major financial centers yes it's behind new york and london to some extent there is a pack of other cities chasing it Uh, it, i should say as well it's also very important for the government here and they have said you know repeatedly that they want to maintain and develop hong kong as a financial center and you know obviously this survey is music to their ears it was there was a kind of release from the hong kong government overnight sort of stressing that ranking so yeah, if you look at it from this point of view, Hong Kong as a financial centre still seems to be going pretty strong. I would suspect that what we see with the um, Eurocham survey is maybe a little bit broader, so it's different kinds of business, uh, perhaps you know skewed a little bit more towards smaller businesses um, that could be based at other places major and you know don't have these kind of big opportunities that the major banks do in Hong Kong, for example. And so it's easier for people to think about moving to other locations. Andrew, let me ask you about uh, Hong Kong stocks. We've had, I think, probably the most volatile two weeks in in history or, or close to it mm. um, over the last couple of weeks. This huge collapse at the beginning of last week. Now this huge rebound boosted by companies like Alibaba uh, and their buybacks. We've seen um, maybe a 20% rebound now in that in the Hang Seng. Do you think some of these changes that have been uh, talked about on the mainland have put a floor under Hong Kong stocks? Oh, gosh, you make me sound like an economist. The answer is yes and no. First, we're, we're paying the price that 80% of uh, Hansen Index is effectively China. So, yeah, whatever happens to China is immediately reflected back to Hong Kong, backwards and forwards. Now, uh, the fact that there has been a shift in the policy stance of the, or in inverted commas, authorities as far as uh, direct intervention on uh, compliance is concerned, and the government saying that we will do our best in terms of fiscal injections. And, of course, with the People's Bank of China cutting interest rates, like everybody else, all this is, uh, all this is, uh, this is, uh, this is positive. But, but having said that, there is still uh, the, the issue of uh, opening the account books to United States regulator, which apparently, according at least to the Americans, and unlike what the Chinese mm-hmm. have said, it's by no means... Uh, signed, settled, and uh, and delivered. In other words, the delisting issue may very well uh, be hanging there. So, uh, yes, the, the 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 up and down has absolutely nothing to do with Hong Kong. It had to do with uh, the market's expectations about policy making and specific policies uh, in particular. And uh, because the Hansen Index is effectively a China index, yeah, you get hit. Quentin, do you see this latest news from U.S. regulators rather knocking on the head hopes that uh, audit inspections could go ahead of U.S. listed Chinese companies and avert the delisting of $2 trillion of shares? The uh, the PCAOB, the Accounting Oversight Board, uh, says those hopes are premature. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Chinese side have said several times that they would like to reach some sort of agreement. Um, the issue seems to be what can they 
proposed that will be acceptable to the Americans. And also, I think there's a second concern, which is that, you know, there are different constituencies on the Chinese side, if you like. So, you know, the, the securities regular might, regulator might be willing to kind of come up with a compromise. But is that something that will also, you know, fly with the, with the security apparatus or with the data security um, people? So it, it's quite complicated. But we do have a couple of years to get this solved. You know, the clock is ticking, but it's ticking toward 2024 rather than imminent delistings. Oh, okay. On one hand, one feels uh, sympathetic to the Americans. You say, you know, I would like to register as a as, as a guest in your house, and you say, well, there are certain rules you have to you have to to, to obey. So I think for me, it makes a great deal of sense. If you want to be quoted, then you have to be audited. Yep, and, and we've uh, seen too many scandals, haven't we, of uh, of yeah. companies that turned out to have accounting frauds. Yeah. So uh, it might it might appear that the Chinese are thinking that the Americans are using this as an extra way of tweaking uh, Chinese noses, which uh, mm. you could say they could be using it, but equally you could say they have every right to say what are the rules in their home. Oh, if you okay. don't like them, leave. Okay. okay, well, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. That's Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management, Quinton Webb, Asia Markets Editor at The Wall Street Journal. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.20 and on the phone now is Hong Kong's Secretary for Labour and Welfare, Dr. Law Chi Kwong. Good morning, Dr. Law. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for coming on to the programme. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about Hong Kong's overall unemployment situation. We had that data out uh, last week, shows the unemployment rate for the three-month period ending in February has risen to 4.5%, the highest since September 2021. Financial Secretary Paul Chan warning uh, that Hong Kong's economy is inevitably going to fall into negative growth in the first quarter of this year. Where do you think is going to be the low point for our um, uh, uh, employment? What do you think the low point will be and when, when are we going to hit it? Uh, I guess uh, because the epidemic has uh, came, has has come to its highest point at the uh, beginning of this month. Uh, so and the um, and the number of cases has been coming down. So we hope that uh, by April that uh, the numbers will be coming down to like uh, close something on the sort of four digits thing. So so we expect. Uh, together with the coming of the consumption voucher, and uh, we are planning to roll out an employment support scheme in uh, May, we hope that the economy will be able to pick up uh, next month. So if you look at those figures, uh, we'll expect the highest unemployment rate will be reflected in the three months uh, between um, uh, February, March, and April. So, so by by then, it will it will start uh, coming down. And, and what is the impact of opening our borders with both the mainland and internationally going to have on the job situation here? Uh, I guess the most important part is still uh, the, the the epidemic uh, situation here in Hong Kong, in particularly uh, whether business can be. Uh, 
open up again in April and, and subsequently then the more economic activities locally can be observed. Then I would say that the, the trade has been still going on. So when we start uh, allowing residents of Hong Kong uh, coming back in the latter part of April, then things will start uh, to resume. And, and which do you see happening first? Do you think the border will open with the mainland, with our, or will our international borders open first? Could it happen at the same time? I, I guess we're, we're really talking about very different things, about the meaning of opening the, the border. Okay, uh, We have stopped flights from space, uh, place specific from nine countries. Uh, but they can always come back from elsewhere through uh, other routes like back to, uh, flying to Singapore, some flying to other Asian countries, and then flying to Hong Kong. So we, we are not actually closing the border, so to speak. The only issue is related to the length of time that people have to spend in quarantine after they arrive in Hong Kong or when they leave Hong Kong, say, to the mainland. So, so we, we never close our border. Uh, let us be very strict about this. Uh, the, the concerns in, in, in business is really if we can shorten the period of quarantine, then there will be less barriers to this movement, particularly in terms of business, trading, seeing your trading partners, uh, making deals, etc., etc. So uh, we, the, the border is still open, uh, and people uh, in, in the mainland, uh, they are not coming from places with infection. They can come to Hong Kong easily uh, without the need for, uh, uh, for, for quarantine. So, so it depends on the epidemic situation in the mainland in Hong Kong. We'll see how, how far we can reduce that quarantine requirement, both in terms of in both directions. But the problem is we still do have that seven-day quarantine when a lot of countries are removing altogether quarantine requirements. We don't have flights. It's almost impossible to fly out at the moment or to fly in even if you if you want to or are able to. And as we heard yesterday, uh, Singapore is now relaxing a lot more restrictions. I know Mrs Lam said there's no one size fits all, but we are clearly competing with places like Singapore, aren't we, for talent, for skills, for, for jobs, uh, and to be an international aviation hub and a, and a finance hub. How do we compete with places like Singapore when they've got a clear exit strategy and we don't? Well, you, you look, well the, the discussion right now seems to be like the trade-off of life of elderly persons and uh, free flow of people in and out Hong Kong. Because we still have only almost like half of our residents aged 80 or above haven't got any injection. Uh, and once we have reduced that amount, even with the reduction of the quarantine period to seven days, we are actually leaving out 5% of those cases that come to the community. And that will that will spread the, the virus. So, so it's a matter of trade-off, how much we can tolerate in terms of the risk. If you talk about zero quarantine, then you talk about 100% of people coming in, and then, and then we, we will see our uh, A&E department of our hospitals will be jammed again, and, and deaths coming up in thousands uh, 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 every week. And, and these are the things that we don't find that acceptable, at least at this point of time. Can't we do both? Can't we allow people to come in? We, we saw that European Chamber of Commerce survey yesterday, a very, very alarming one, 
which shows half of European companies in Hong Kong plan to either fully or partially relocate out of Hong Kong. We can't afford to lose this talent, can we? So can't we do both? Can't we try and protect our job situation and at the same time protect the elderly and the vulnerable, uh, the most vulnerable in society from, from COVID, make sure they are the ones who are in hospital, but at the same time allow businesses uh, to, to, to reopen and start uh, employing people again. Yes, if we can achieve 90 to 95% of the uh, vaccination rate among our seniors, then, then, then so that that's the requirement. That, that would not be a trade off of thousands of lives and, 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 and people flowing freely. Mm. So is that is that the requirement? Is that really the exit strategy? Once we get to 90 or 95 percent of our elderly vaccinated, that's the point at which you think we can open up, we can get businesses back on their feet again, get people back into jobs? This is the point that we, we will see, even if there is virus spraying around, then our hospital systems should still be able to survive. If we have that over 90 and preferably 95% vaccination rate among our seniors. Okay. Now, we have the employment support scheme starting uh, next month. Can you explain a little bit about how you think that will help bring about the economic recovery and lower unemployment in the city? The, the whole idea about this employment support scheme is really to try to help the employers to, to plan ahead, uh, starting from today, and how far they can scale up their operation. Because the more the people they employ, they will receive more subsidy. And, and that will help the, the, the enterprises here in Hong Kong to think in terms of what can they do in May, what they can do in June and July, and how to pick up the economy. So it is really helping a business to, 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 to get started again. Uh, and what about what can we do for those businesses that have already, well, for, for those that have closed down? There's a lot of people who don't have jobs to go back to because, um, you know, they're, they're low skilled, they're, their companies have closed permanently. What can we do to help them and, and to maybe try and get new businesses to, to start up? Well, Hong Kong is a place where people uh, is quite dynamic. And if you look at what happened last year, the economy picked up very quickly once we have achieved a zero local infection. And uh, that's why we, we, we announced the employment support scheme that early, even though we, we haven't had all the details, we haven't yet go, gone to the uh, Legislative Council Finance Committee to gather money, it is to give people the expectation that uh, some support will be coming, particularly mm. in terms of paying a portion of their, their payroll. And, and that will help business to start planning right now. And, and that's why we hope that it will help to, to kickstart the economy again. And certain businesses, certain workers aren't going to get those subsidies, which is different from the scheme last time around. What, what is the thinking behind that? Well, because the, well, the epidemic hits people diff very differently. Uh, some of the businesses are not actually uh, affected by, by, by the epidemic, or, or so to speak, they may not be affected to that extent, or some even can be benefited because of like people doing uh, online trading and uh, and shopping and and that kind of activity so mm. so we try to help those really need 
uh, uh, some support before they can come come back to 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 pick up again. So this is the uh, uh, so somehow we want to be more more targeted. In particular, if you look at large enterprise versus uh, micro enterprises, you you expect that the large enterprises will be able to survive and plan and and sort of uh, dealing with these challenges over the past few months, uh, but. For, for micro small enterprises, that would be very difficult. So the target of the employment support scheme is also focused on SMEs. And also there's the unemployment subsidy scheme. You've started taking applications for that already. What has been the take-up of that so far? As far as I know, it was uh, uh, by yesterday, it was something like, uh, uh, tr- like 120,000 okay. already. Right, so, so, so that's quite significant. What, what sort of things can also the government do to help people back to work so that they don't have to rely on those subsidies? Well, once the, once the economic activities start to, um, to grow again, then, then and, uh, they will require people to work. And in fact, uh, if you look at the situation at the end of last year, actually we found shortage in many different sectors in the economy. So I, I, I do think that uh, uh, the getting back to work, uh, just, just depending on, on the situation of ep- epidemic and how far the, the businesses can, can catch up again. Dr. Law, thank you very much for coming on to the program this morning. You're Sadly, welcome. we've run out of time. That's Dr. Law Chi Kwong, who is Secretary for Labour and Welfare. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets in Australia. The SX200 up 0.2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is slipping now, down about 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea also off 0.1%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 75 points at the open. Brent crude oil is trading at $118.14 a barrel. Gold is at $1,962 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. The news is coming up, followed by COVID updates with Janice Wong and Andrew Worth. The weather forecast for today and for the weekend, cloudy with occasional showers, coastal mist, uh, showers will ease off gradually in the afternoon, maximum temperature of about 23 degrees, and then warm and humid tomorrow, and it will be cool with occasional thundery showers early next week. There is a strong monsoon signal in force, temperature right now 19 degrees and it's 95 percent relative humidity time's 8 32 here's andrew shorosky with the half hour news thank you peter president biden has said nato has never been more united than it is today and that vladimir putin is getting the opposite of what he intended when russia attacked ukraine Mr. Biden was speaking after an emergency NATO summit in Brussels, which saw leaders approve plans to send new battle groups to four countries in Eastern Europe. Mr. Biden said the United States would continue to send assistance to Ukraine. The United States is committed to provide over $2 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since I became president. Anti-air systems, anti-armor systems, ammunition... And our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. And today, I'm announcing the United States is prepared to commit more than $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. At least 220,000 aspiring homeowners have applied to buy heavily subsidized homes ahead of yesterday's deadline. 
Nearly 9,000 plats are being made available under the home ownership scheme at prices between one and a quarter million and $5.3 million. They are in areas including North Point, Sha Tin, and Kuntong. A lottery will take place to, to decide who gets to buy a home. These people were among the applicants. I am not happy. There are people who manage to get their flats just after one try. I have tried 20 times. We've been planning to purchase a property, just waiting for an opportunity. State media in North Korea say, says the country has tested a test fired a new type of intercontinental ballistic missile yesterday to boost its nuclear deterrent against what it terms U.S. imperialism. It was the first full ICBM test by North Korea since 2017. New applications for U.S. jobless benefits have dropped to a 52-year low, pushing up wages and feeding into inflation. At the end of January, there were 11.3 million job openings with a record 1.8 open positions per unemployed person. Mike Weeks reports. 